Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, your host of, and uh, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me as always is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. Hi. So, um, today uh, we're talking about love and hell. Yes. Which is a great topic. <laughs> like, it's a great title, I gotta say. Um, <laughs> it sounds kind of like, I don't know, some sort of exciting novel. Um, yes. Possibly. <laughs> it does, actually. I'm, trying, I'm, I'm writing the plot in my head now, actually, that it's like, it's gotta be kind of an Ursula Le Guin novel. Like, one of these sort of thinky sci-fi novels. I have to say... Two planets, yeah, maybe. I'm now worried, actually, that when I came up with this title, I may have been influenced by something a lot less erudite, <laughs> <laughs> which would be the MCU. I believe uh-huh. now that you said that, it did not occur to me till just now, but I'm pretty sure that the next Thor movie coming out with Natalie Portman as Thor is called Love and Thunder. Hmm. Is that the one that so, uh, Taika? Yes, is Taika what TT yep, directed? Hundred percent. Oh Just my like gosh! Ragnarok, okay, which was amazing. All right. Yes, I've become a big fan of his. Oh so. yeah, he's fantastic. Um, yes, definitely <laughs> one of the top five New Zealanders that I know. Yes, <laughs> uh, Jewish indigenous New Zealanders. There can't there be there can't be tons of more those. than five of yes. those. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, all yeah, right. excellent director and actor, all in one. Yeah. All right. So last week, last week we talked about effective piety, yes, which is going to be a big part of our discussion yes. today, and that is devotion, where uh, which is devotion to Jesus, as spe- like specifically the person of Jesus, particularly his infancy and the mm-hmm. passion. Yes. And sometimes also devotion to Mary's sorrow. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mary Sorrow, Mary as mother, um, all of the sort of physical, right, affective, all the physical, emotional mm-hmm. elements. Yes. We are continuing on from there. Yes. Um, and oh, I was going to say, this might be the weird part. This is going to be love and damnation, right? Or love and hell. And next time is going to be mm-hmm. hell and damnation. Um, because... okay. Love and hell would not seem to go together, but actually in the Middle Ages, they are very closely tied. Um, And so hell seemed like the perfect place to sort of conclude, except that hell obviously also deserves its own episode. So I was like, well, if this is love and hell, then next time should be full on hell and damnation. Gotta give hell its due. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, it has come up a couple of times in the past in like tantalizing little yes. glimpses, yes. the harrowing, um, which is one of my favorite stories. Yay. So. Yeah, so we'll get full on into that. Um, yeah, shall we get started with. All right. All right. Yeah, let's just. Awesome. Go so right we're in. continuing with essentially effective piety. And this is the love part of the love, <laughs> love and hell. Um, we're talking love with a very capital L um, in Dutch, in sort of middle, medieval Dutch. Um, this is minne, that's M-I-N-N-E. Um, and mm-hmm. this becomes a term that is used in the Middle Ages and also by modern scholars to discuss this sort of specific element of effective piety. Um, and that is love personified. So we've talked about the soul being personified. Um, of course, God is personified, right? The Trinity. Um, mm-hmm. There's sort of various elements that are personified around God, virtues, all of these things, right, in theology, um, and particularly mysticism. Well, here we have love. Um, and so Minna as the sort of concept of love, and that can be divine love in many, many, many different forms. So we'll get into some of those, but I want to give a shout out to Hadavij. 
um, of either Brabant or Antwerp. I mean, Brabant is, of course, you know, Antwerp is sort of more specific the city, maybe, but certainly probably from the Brabant area. Anyway, so Hadavij. Um She obviously does write, write in Dutch. Um, she's a Begin, which we talked about last time. So she's definitely not part of an established order. She is not an established nun. She does seem to have a community at some point, right, of, of other Beguines, and she writes some of her poems and stuff to other another Begin. Um, she's around in the first half of the 1200s. So we don't know precisely life, death, but first half of the 13th century, essentially. Um, she's definitely noble. She's learned. She knows a lot. She's read a lot. She's widely read. And it's probably, this is a good moment to point out that this was much harder to do in the Middle Ages, because to read things, you had to have a manuscript. <laughs> yes. This was well before the invention yes. of the printing press. And manuscripts are very... So when we say manuscript, we mean manu, like yes. written by hand. Yeah. Manuscript. Yeah. Written by hand. Very, 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 very time-intensive, labor-intensive. Um, and, of course, this is why, even today, um, we talk about writing and reading differently. We don't always think of them differently, but we should. Um, and we say, like, reading, writing, mm -hmm. and arithmetic, right? Um, <laughs> the three R's, yes. But that idea of learning to write was, of course, very different from learning to read. And learning to read was absolutely not automatic because how many people had something that you could practice on, right? So to be fair, over right. the course of the Middle Ages, reading becomes way more accessible. So people do frequently, I think, underestimate mm -hmm. how well people could read in the Middle Ages, and that's something we might talk about in the future. But Right, that comes up in the, the cheese yes. and the worms, um, that they have some records of like the number of books that like some random guy was actually yes. able to yeah. read. But the other thing that strikes me is that the language that you spoke might not actually be the language of the manuscripts that you were able to access. Yes. So that's another problem. Like there's certainly people who have taught themselves to read English. Um, but that, you know, that would be a situation where you're both speaking, like you're immersed right. in English and you also have English right. language texts. So it's a little bit different if you only hear Latin yes. at church. And then, yeah. you know. And of course, just the same as today, um, uh, you know, a Latin manuscript is probably going to be more expensive and harder to get um, than something in the vernacular, right? So that also tends to be true, that, um, you know, there, there's the medieval equivalent of the dime store paperback or whatever. Oh. So that's also something that's out there, right? Um, is sort of a hierarchy of textual <laughs> formats. Something we'll talk about, right? The size and the quality. Right. Um, but also the linguistic composition. Uh, what tends to happen, though, frequently is you'll actually find compilations um, that can be in either in multiple languages um, or frequently Latin hmm. and a vernacular, right? Vernacular, of course, meaning okay. not Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, right? The spoken language. <laughs> yes. Everybody else's um, languages, yeah. Or uh, you might find books that have sort of multiple languages. Um, things can be written, though, in both, right? Latin and vernacular. Sometimes you'll sort of find mixed. Mm -hmm. um, in, the heading, in the heading of our website, not yes. to plug it or anything, but... There's a screenshot from the Crusaders Bible that has text in, I believe in Latin, and also notes in the margins in Hebrew and I want to say in Ooh, we'll Persian. Have to that. Yeah. So, but yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. So there were definitely books yes. like and that yes, too. Yes, you might also be able to read a different language, but if you were taking notes to yourself in the margins, that might not be the language you would notate in, right? Which, of course, is also true mm -hmm. today. You know a language well enough to read it, but the notes you take are in a different language. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. So all of these things are true in the Middle Ages. But it is harder to get the written word than it is today, obviously. <laughs> right? Um, mm -hmm. And also probably because, you know, things tend to be written on 
vellum, which is animal skin, right? So all around, right, the quality of these things is tougher. Um, and you might scrape um, a sheet of vellum after you were done, you know, erase it, essentially, and write over it, right? Because that's expensive. It's, ex- it's an expensive material. Um, anyway, so this is just a sort of, for the future, <laughs> future reference, a little a side note on what it means to be learned, right? So that these women were that we have talked about in the past and we'll talk about in the future. Um, they have access to this stuff. So that's one of the ways, of course, you know that they had to be fairly noble. They have to be fairly well off to have mm-hmm. had access to all this stuff. Um, also, of course, to have had the education that allowed them to read it. Right. Yeah. So Hadavi, just from the low countries, which we talked about last time, it was a real hotbed for sort of begins and for mysticism. Um, she influences people who come later, like John Roosbrook, of Roosbrook, but he's just known as Roosbrook. Um, and we'll, t- we'll mention him again in a little bit. But she writes lots of stuff, and it's different. So she's one of these really interesting people who writes a lot of different things. She has visions. She writes letters. She writes poems. Um, the poems are the best. <laughs> I mean, she, all the stuff is amazing. Um, and it's all really fantastic. And she's sort of an incredible thinker, um, which, of course is a little bit dangerous for a woman, right? You can't be a theologian. Right. But you can act like one anyway if you want to. You know, you might or might not get in trouble for it, <laughs> basically. Um, okay. But her poems are love poems, and that is both literal and figurative, right? Minna is, these are poems to love, about love, for love. Love we talked about last time, right? Sort of like in the Song of Songs, it's usually assumed not to be literal, physical for another person. But many of mm-hmm. the poems read, and they're clearly written frequently in the tradition of the French sort of troubadours, right? The French love songs. Hmm. Um, so okay. the chivalric tradition of love that we'll sort of talk about. Um, but in that case of Right, knights, uh, you know, doing great exploits for love, fighting for lady love. Mm-hmm. And so this is another interesting thing. We've mentioned Hildegard a lot, so allow me to mention her again right now. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> right. Hadavij pulls off an interesting sort of gender reversal in her imagery, because love is a lady, right? So this is chivalric imagery, so this is okay. lady love. And she is the one for whom you fight. She is the one who tortures you, the one to whom you submit, the one who overpowers you. There are all these interesting images. Um, and mm-hmm. Hadavij is the warrior, the knight fighting for love. Right? Or sometimes beaten down by love or, you know, all the things that, that happen. Okay. And so that sort of interesting element of that reversal. Um, but the poems, I mean, she's got this whole series of these poems that are sort of written in this tradition and yet are clearly about the divine. But we have interesting things. So this is uh, poem 16. Uh, I will give, of course, the translation stuff in the footnotes. It's the Paulist Press edition. Now has my cruel destiny marched its army against me, recruited from every side. My highways, but lately free, are heavily occupied. Peace is refused me. See whether my sad lot can find any counsel. If I'm led on by love to victory... O noble love, I thank you for it. Love conquers all things. May she help me to conquer in my turn. And may she who knows every need grant that I may learn how hard it is for me had I the chance to wait for the fruition of love. Cruel reason, which helps against it, introduces confusion in my mental powers. That's just two stanzas. But, um, yeah, she's a fantastic (laughs) poet. (laughs) I mean, he's really brilliant, obviously. But you can mm-hmm. hear in there all the imagery, right? The conquering, the fighting, the suffering. Yeah. So Minna, love, is God, but also kind of the divine within the universe. So sort of the essence of the divine that exists okay. in all things. So what that means is God, meaning sort of Jesus, right? The second person, but also the Father, mm-hmm. the Holy Ghost, right? God is love. Right. Jesus is love. Mm-hmm. Right. So sort of personified. Um, that's uh, the metaphor aspect. Um, but there's also a sense in which love is 
the essence of the universe. Okay. So God is both this specific entity made up of three that sort of combine into God, right? The unity. But God is also all things. This is an Aeolic Bactu. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. love is what makes that possible. So, mineh. Right? So this sense of the chivalric tradition and fighting for love, right? Being the knight fighting for the lady love. Um, for Hadavij, that is, right, in some ways only the first step to understanding God. Mm-hmm. Right? So this is a tradition that comes out of sort of, right, more popular, non-devotional contexts. Um, and it sort of allows people to start on their journey towards knowing God. If you start out by thinking of God as Jesus specifically, right, the sort of human form, um, and then eventually you'll sort of get to the Father and then the Holy Ghost. Okay. And so love, thinking of love as sort of um, in the chivalric tradition is a way to start that journey. Mm-hmm. Right, so a lot of things we talked about last time, the very physical aspect of effective piety. For Hadavich, that's sort of the first step. Right, but in her sense, Minna, love goes way beyond that. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and so this is where she starts to really head towards where we're going next with this idea. And it's worth pointing out that, of course, while God is love, so God is Minna, um, and she is the knight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's also a lot of chivalric imagery attached to Christ himself as a knight who sort of came to conquer death. And I okay. think last time we footnoted some previous time, maybe an Easter episode, <laughs> we footnoted like the, the Arma Christi, which were the tools yes. of the passion. Yes. Like the cross and the nails. And, um, and these are seen as sort of his coat of arms, right? Nobility. Um, also the, but also the tools that he used, right, to, as a sort of workman to mm-hmm. conquer death. Or the weapons he used, right? Arma. The weapons as a knight that he used to conquer death. Um, so this is part of that tradition already, the sense of sort of the chivalric element. But Minna sort of takes this to the next step. And that is the sense of divine love is suffused throughout everything in creation. Right? God's love kind of is everything. Mm-hmm. Everything exists because of divine love. Okay. And the goal of the soul is to be unified and sort of subsumed, subsumed within that love. Okay. Does this... This sounds... Well, I'm trying to remember actually what happens in that, that really long section in Plato's Phaedrus, where he talks about how yes. love makes your soul grow wings or something like that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Although... Well, and of course, the symposium, right, where everyone gives their speech about love. Yes. Oh, and where, great side note here, um, famously, right, Aristophanes gives the speech about um, how you're searching for your other half, Mm -hmm. which is where we get that sense, right? That people used to be sort of four legs, four arms, two heads, right? And we got split. It's a famous story that has been pulled out of Plato, yeah. Yeah, we were too powerful. We got cut in half. Yes. And um, that's why you have your belly button, because that's where like your, your skin was contracted and your head got turned around, so it faces the other way. And that speech was turned into a song by Trask and Mitchell for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is essentially a camp musical that has become, you know, that finally ended up on Broadway via Neil Patrick Harris, but um, that is really about the philosophy of love. Particularly Platonic philosophy, uh, Hedwig's sort of nemesis that's played by the same actor is um, oh. Tommy Gnosis. Huh. Right? G-N-O-S-A-S. Yeah. But um, I have always wondered, <laughs> I don't see how it's possible that either Mitchell or Trask knew anything about Hadavich, whose name, of course, is Hedwig, sort of in modern parlance. Oh. I do think that this is where the owl okay. comes from in Harry Potter. Yes. Yes. It's from Hadavich. Because Rowling knows her stuff. But um, I I don't, you know, but the idea that this <laughs> musical that's really about the philosophy of love <laughs> um, and that actually uses Plato and all of this stuff, hmm. that the main character is named Hedwig, 
And that Hattie Beach happens to have been this famous medieval That's mystic crazy. who wrote all this philosophy about love. Yeah. I just look. It's, the parallels are fantastic. I don't care what they intended. Okay. The parallels are brilliant. So I just wanted to bring that up. Yes. Um, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. that being said, um, Hadavid, yeah, she's really a philosopher. She really is. Right. So there is there are definite ties. Again, right? Plato wasn't really accessible mm. yeah. by text. Anymore. Okay. But those ideas are prevalent. Right. We sort of mentioned this in an early mm-hmm. episode. Um, the ideas are still floating around, absolutely. Um, and so there's no question that a lot of the philosophy comes from Plato, some from Aristotle. Um, and so, yes, a lot of these ideas sort of about love are stem sort of originally from a lot of that. But there's also, of course, this very particular sense of the divine as love, mm-hmm. right? That that's where this mysticism goes. If you concentrate on the passion as being a significant event, not just because it allows everyone to be saved, which, of course, is the real key importance there, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. because it shows God's love for humanity, right? Which is to say salvation eventually becomes seen kind of as the byproduct of that love. God loved his creatures too much to allow them to be forever damned. Um, mm-hmm. And so this, the ultimate, right, s- signifier of God's love. Um, and so from that, this idea of the divine love that exists, um, that sort of grows into the sense that Hadavich has, that that is what really allows the universe to exist, is divine love. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I'm, it feels like such um, a modern idea, that because whenever you walk around you know, on a college campus or whatever, and you see different groups trying to recruit you to come to their church, they always have things up that say, for God so loved his only son, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. But this is a little bit different, because this is actually about how God's only son loved you. Right. Yes. That might be what most people are trying to convey if you stopped and talked to them for longer yes. than I usually it is, do. But. It both is and isn't. <laughs> it sort of depends, right? Um, yeah. You know, there's also, I'd say, a, a tradition that's not modern, I mean, but it also exists today. Most of these traditions are not modern, but they also mm-hmm. exist today. <laughs> um, yeah, that might be that might be a better way to put it. Yeah. Yes. But one of them is very much this sort of idea of... Um, you are unworthy of this love, so what are you going to do about mm-hmm. it? And that also is part of this, right? Um, all of these women sort of seeing themselves as unworthy, but no more unworthy than anybody else, which is important, mm-hmm. right? They yeah. don't see themselves necessarily as less worthy because they're women. <laughs> Some of them pretend to. They might say they do. Um, but that sense of how are you going to earn this love? You can't. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is is really, really important. Right. This is the debt that cannot be paid. Um, South Park covers this brilliantly. <laughs> okay. I hate to say it, but does. And there's an episode um, that we will footnote that I have occasionally taught that is actually about this. And um, <laughs> where um, Stan buys an unlimited credit card and takes on the debts of, like, everybody in the... Hmm. Okay. You know, town. And at the end, there's this thing of him writing the right, writing his credit card, taking on the debts of everybody. Mm-hmm. Literally, of course. This is very literal. Yeah. And at the end, he's, like, passed out. They're like, oh, he's dead. But he hasn't actually died. He's just got worn out from 24 hours of, like, swiping his credit card to take on the debts of the whole town. And that idea is... South Park's version of this story. Yeah. But that is the exact idea behind this. Mm -hmm. This is the debt that cannot be repaid, right? We don't have the ability to repay it. Right. (laughs) How can you repay someone dying to, you know, let you into heaven? You can't. Um, And so there are two ways to take that. One of them is more punitive, right? 
uh, the women we're talking about here do not take that route. Mm-hmm. They actually take the opposite route, which is sort of where we're going. And that is the idea that because love is everything, because God is love, and a love that it was so great as to do that, right? The passion, salvation, is so unimaginable that the only thing you can do is sort of be subsumed by that love. But that that is the desire of that love, is that everyone be part of it. Okay. Right. So, <laughs> um, this is encroaching on, but is not yet quite at the point of apophatic mysticism, which is where we're going next. Okay. So Hadavij is on that route, right? You can see how this sort of, this idea of this union with the beloved that kind of subsumes you into its unity. Mm-hmm. The unity of God. Um, and the universe and so on. So, so the idea here also is that hell is the place where there's no God. Where there is no love. Okay. Yeah, we'll come back to this. Because this is really important. In my tradition <laughs> of connecting everything we talk about to sci-fi novels, yeah. uh, there's a Ted Chiang short story. Right. Um, in his first yes. collection, um, Your Life and Others, yeah. about uh, basically, you know, people trying to join with God. Yes. Well, I mean, there is, of course, right, <laughs> the famous as hell is other people. Um, yeah. Which is a great way yeah, of Yeah, I think it. the story, the story is actually called Hell is yes. the Absence of God. Yes. Yes. And that is actually the point. Um, start, of course, no exit is the idea of helping other people. Yes. <laughs> and also, of course, the beginning of um, The Good Place. But, um, yes. <laughs> brilliantly. But Sartre had a lot of different ideas about he did. Um, everything yes. than your average medievalist. Yes. But. Well, but so here's the sense, right? So hell is absence of love. And that does also mean we're talking about love and minna. Yes, the absence of God. Mm-hmm. But absence is really a better way to put it. Because God, of course, is everything. But hell is the absence of God and love. Yeah. Um, but we're sort of getting there because so apophatic mysticism, which is sort of what happens right after Hadavij, right? So I said she's sort of the first half of the 1200s. And you get Marguerite Perrette, late 1200s, dies June 1st, 1310. Marguerite Perrette is amazing and brilliant and one of the greatest philosophers of the Middle Ages. Hmm. So Hadavij is a philosopher and a poet and an amazing thinker. But Marguerite Perrette achieves a level of philosophy beyond which most people didn't go. <laughs> there are a lot of men, of course, famously, who mm-hmm. had extraordinarily right philosophical minds. But um, Peret's philosophy is extraordinary. It also was deemed heretical. Mm-hmm. And this is why we know she died on June 1st, um, because she was burned at the stake in Paris. Ah. So apophatic mysticism. Is Hadavij's love taken to its obvious extreme? And Meister Eckhart, Meister, of course, master, right? He had a degree, (laughs) right? I'm sad as somebody who has master's degrees that we no longer call the person who holds those masters. Yes, Master Lupton. Like, if if there was any way that I could get away with that, I definitely would put that down on everything as my title. He's Meister and see what people do. Yes. But yes, so Meister Eckhart, who's 1260 to 1328, uh, he is influenced by Perret, by Marguerite Perret, absolutely. He is also brought up on charges, essentially, right? He gets in trouble. And it's unclear if he doesn't get burned at the stake because he's a guy or because he just died before he actually got condemned at that level. Um, this is something mm-hmm. scholars sort of argue about. A lot of people feel that, you know, he was a guy. He was a Meister, right? Um, right. He probably would have been fine, and other people are not so sure. But either way, he did also get in trouble, but did not get burned at the stake. Yeah. And then we have other people like Roosbrook mentioned, who served 1293 or 4 to 1381, who was influenced originally by Hadovich for sure, and then some, by some of these later, right, also by Perret Eckhart. The low countries, it should be pointed out, are incredibly important, right? This is where Beguines are happening. There are all these movements that make religious authorities very nervous 
right? Women on their own, women doing their own thinking, women writing their own books, right? Frequently in the vernacular. Not always, but frequently. Hmm. So all of this makes people nervous. Uh, Marguerite Perrette is from the Low Countries, French-speaking part in this case, but probably I know uh, she hangs out in Valenciennes probably for a while. That's sort of her town. She's definitely influenced by the Beguines of the Low Countries, like Hadavige, effective piety, all the stuff that we've discussed last week, this week. She takes it to a whole new level and writes a book, The Mirror of Simple Souls, which is translated is translated in the Middle Ages. The mirror. Into a okay. lot of languages. Yeah, the mirror of simple souls. Now, this is interesting. The idea of the mirror, or the speculum, mm-hmm. is a really important medieval image. Right? If you think of through a glass darkly, right? Yeah. What's reflected in the mirror? What can we see through it? What's, you know, all of these things. The interesting thing about the fact she uses it is because the what she ultimately thinks of the soul is sort of that it becomes annihilated within God. So how can it be reflected? All right, so that's a sort of paradox. But there are a lot of translations of her book from the Middle Ages, which is really interesting, because, of course, when she gets condemned, it gets burned. Um, and so it wasn't sort of until the early 20th century that it was rediscovered, which is to say, of course, these manuscripts had been out there, mm-hmm. but it was discovered that this was her book because you could match up specific passages with the trial transcripts and be like, oh, this passage in this book oh. is clearly it's the original context. Uh-huh. So this must be it. Um, she wrote it. So they didn't burn all the copies. No, they couldn't. Basically. I mean... Right. How would you do that? Even today. <laughs> How would you right. know? Someone hides it away. What are you going to do? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but remember what I said about how hard it is to sort of make a book and everything. Like, if you copy this thing, you yeah. wanted to do it. And if you translate it. Yes. That's a whole other level. You know, hold it. Right? Yeah, hold on to that for a long yeah. time. Um, and then there are copies of translations. And what's also interesting, of course, is that some of the translations are made from from different texts, which is to say, she wrote an old French version. And we have a Middle French version that's from much later, like 1370. Oh. We don't have her original version. But we do have this Middle French version. Um, and then there's a Latin translation. There's some Middle English translations. And some Italian translations. Um, and some of the translations are done off of different texts. So that's an added interesting point. Hmm. The Mirror of Simple Souls is a dialogue. So, speaking of Plato, it is a platonic dialogue. To what extent it's supposed to be platonic, because again, those texts don't exist so much anymore, but that is what it is. It is a dialogue in that tradition. Right? You know, the tradition of the dialogue, of course, certainly continues to exist way beyond. Um, So that sense of dialogue still exists. This is a dialogue. Right? Um, And as I said, even though a lot of them had been lost, not only does the dialogic tradition continue to exist but in university Mm -hmm. settings um this is of course how things are debated right right so she sets up her own dialogue amongst a lot of characters but primarily you've got love of course right the soul reason reason is kind of the antagonist Mm -hmm. um because of course love versus reason makes sense Mm -hmm. um and many more you've got all sorts of stuff so, um, this also uses frequently the metaphor sort of, of chivalric love, mm-hmm. right? The sort of the conquering that I did. But her ultimate point at the end is that the soul is subsumed into love. And this is, of course, Hadavij, except that she really goes all the way, right? Perrette. She goes all the way. Um, and she says, right, that the soul really is annihilated within divine love, right? If you reach oh, the hierarchy okay. that you want to reach, <laughs> right, the <laughs> level that you want to reach in understanding divine love, you yourself will completely disappear within it. Hmm. One of the sort of arguments, though, as to why this isn't annihilation, which is kind of exactly what it is, but the reason it's sort of argued that it's not is because once the soul has been completely subsumed into divine love, the soul is now everything. Because God is everything. 
So the soul is actually not nothing. The soul is everything. Okay. Because you're a part of divine love, which is everything. So it's kind of the opposite of annihilation. I see the progression of logic. Yes. Um, she compares it to a river returning to the sea. Right? Okay. You're no longer the river, but now you're the whole ocean. You see how this works. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It raises a question, though, like, what... Usually when people conceptualize the afterlife... <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, as I take it, that uh, that they do retain some form of themselves, like some sort of consciousness, oh, yes. which the idea of being annihilated... I did say she was burned at the stake. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, okay. But you have exactly hit on one of the reasons why. Mm -hmm. There's some other reasons. So, for example, she seems to not be entirely convinced that ecclesiastical hierarchies are necessary for a relationship with God. Okay. That Which was, of course, also not a good proto thing. Proto-Protestant type yeah. of heresy. Um, and so, which obviously, right? Because if you can be subsumed within love, what do you need hierarchies for? Right. There are no hierarchies. Like, that's the point. Everything is... Does equal. that also <laughs> suggest that, like, all of the saints that people um, might pray to as intercessors... Yes. Like, if, if those people have already been sort of subsumed, they might not really be available for intercession. Yes. Um, this is, of course, one of the problems. And um, sort of right after she dies... There's the uh, Council of Vienne, 1311 to 12, Pope Clement V. And one of the things that he does sort of make <laughs> dogma is the idea that, right, this is a quote from the intro, actually, to Mirror of Simple Souls, the translation. The substance of the rational intellectual soul is by its own nature and essentially the form of the human body. So... We talked about this also a little bit last time, which is the idea that after the final judgment, right? Everyone's judged when you mm -hmm. die, but then there's the final judgment at the end of the world. And then wherever you end up, heaven or hell, um, your soul is contained within your body. Right. And everything is individual. So that is absolutely always dogma and is made more dogma as time goes on. And as I said, sort of right after she's born at the stake, um, right, there's this council that sort of reiterates some of that. And that idea <laughs> and the sort of feeling that they needed to do this, um, one of the other things the council does is sort of try and disband the whole Beguine movement, right? Mm. Um, and this, a lot of this might be due actually sort of directly to Marguerite Perrette. Um, <laughs> and her, you know, her book, basically, yeah. right? Um, and so that, but that idea, yes, that everything is individual and discrete, that your soul is part of your body, these things will be recreated as they were physically, as individual discrete units, that has always really been dogma, but is increasingly, as I said, sort of restated because of where this philosophy goes. And um, it's actually sort of interesting because Hadavij mentions in her work, a Beguine who she says was killed by Dominican Inquisitor for her, in quotes, great love. Which presumably means Minna, right? Her devotion to this sense. Mm -hmm. We don't know who that was, though. We, there aren't records. We don't know. The first mystic who we know was condemned and martyred for this is Marguerite Perrette. Um, and so William of Paris, William Humbert, who is a Dominican Inquisitor, is the one who sort of heads it up. And... 1310, June 1st, 1310, right? It happens. Um, but it obviously doesn't stamp out her book. <laughs> right. And what's interesting is that even sort of 100 years later, Jean Gerson knows about it. So this is something that has stuck around, right? It's unclear. Um, for In certain circles, it obviously stuck around because people loved it and were influenced by it. But in other circles, she seems to have kind of stuck around as a, like a, Boogie person. A boogie hmm. woman? Definitely yeah. not a boogie man. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this sense of, right, like what it can do if you let women run rampant. Ah! Women with their ideas about things. Yes. What? 
Oh my god. Um, so I just, I really want to sell her though, because her work, it is so difficult. I mentioned McGinn last time, and I know we'll have footnotes on him, and we'll have more footnotes this time. Um, mm-hmm. He has a whole chapter that's on Hadavij and Mechtild of Magdeburg, who we've unfortunately kind of skipped over a little bit in both episodes, um, and then Marguerite Perret. And um, <laughs> his section on Marguerite, you know, he's McGinn is the be-all and the end-all in many ways, but... Um, like everybody else, he basically spends the entire time explaining what we think she's talking about. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, like you do with any philosopher, like you do with right. Plato or Aristotle. What is it we really think they're talking about? Right? She is that level of philosopher. Mm-hmm. She is absolutely at the same level of any of those guys. Right? So it's this incredible thing. And you also see in some ways why she would be the one, even if you sort of take it as... Um, Eckhart, it's not so much maybe even because he was a guy, you know, or because he died before they actually got around to condemning him and burning him. But also, maybe there's a way in which he just wasn't seen as as dangerous. Mm -hmm. Partly because he was a guy, but partly because nobody else really came up with something that was as just astonishing as Marguerite Pratt's book. Right? So that's her sense, right? The sort of apophatic mysticism as this annihilation that is in fact the opposite of annihilation. Right. But yes, that is absolutely heresy. (laughs) Um, But one of the key points here, of course, is this idea that um, what happens to those or are there anyone, are there people who don't get this? If, If love is everything, if everything is God and love and everything is subsumed into that, then so almost by definition, there can't be people who don't end up there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But are there? And that is always this sort of question, right? We hover on the margins of, can there be people who basically aren't saved? Which is what, of course, then brings us to hell. Mm -hmm. And that's a really sort of difficult possibility. Um, And that brings us back to Julian of Norwich. This is where we promised we were going. Right. Um, so she's 1343, died shortly after 1416. Um, of course, an anchoress in Norwich. Julian hints famously at the possibility of universal salvation, which is also a heresy. <laughs> That's her all will be well, right? Yes. And so her sense was, if right, back to love. This exact idea. If God is love, and love is everything, how can there be people who will not get this? And this really bothers a lot of women, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right? That there would be people who are shut out from that love, who are left alone, who are, you know, forced into sort of the absence of God, the absence of love. Mm -hmm. Right? And we were sort of talking before we started recording, about things like Pixar movies, right? And how these things affect you at different ages. Yes, the the children might not be uh, concerned about somebody being, you know, locked up. But as an adult, like, you project your emotions onto them and you say, oh, no, they're left all alone and away from everybody that they love and all of the, Mm -hmm. in this case, all of the divine love. Yes. Um, And so this, this exact idea, right... Um, and so all these women, right, they spend their sort of mystical lives and their philosophy considering divine love. Eventually it becomes really impossible for them to believe that there could be people who aren't allowed it. Right? So Julian, I want to just say this. <laughs> Nowhere does she state that there will be universal salvation. Okay. She does not ever state it. But she obviously skates around the outside. Now, we have no way of knowing really what, of course, she personally believed. And as I said, she never states it in her work. So it's unclear, but it is obviously something that bothered her. And so she has the struggle, not even with hell, but with the very existence of sin. Right? God is love and good. God is everything. So how does sin even exist? And the sort of interesting answer is that it doesn't. (laughs) Huh. This is the fun part, right? That sin doesn't really exist. 
um, that in fact we sort of, we see it in the fact um, that there is pain in the world. That's the sort of, um, right, that's the place that we see this, um, is where there is pain in the world. Um, and so that aspect um, of love <laughs> as God sort of allowing this to be, right? Which is that other question, why do bad things happen to good people? Or even why do bad things happen if God is all good and all knowing and all loving? Right. And so this weird sense of the effect of pain, right, um, is where we see sin. And that really what that pain and suffering is, is the absence of God's love. And so the only way that women like Julian seem to be able to reconcile this is the sense that somehow people ultimately are doing this to themselves and maybe because of free will or something that's not quite stated, it's unclear, right? But God sort of doesn't stop them, mm -hmm. but not necessarily that God couldn't, God won't, right? But all of this is really unclear, but this is the struggle, right? And so um, we have this, <laughs> the sort of most famous section for, uh, for Julian, right? is she says, uh, right, I often wondered why, through the great prescient wisdom of God, the beginning of sin was not prevented, for then it seemed to me that all would have been well. The impulse to think this was greatly to be shunned. So what she means is, right, you're not supposed to think this way. This is obviously heretical. <laughs> you, can't, right. you can't wonder about these things, but right. it bothers her. All right. So I mourned and sorrowed on this account, unreasonably lacking discretion. So she's acknowledging she shouldn't be, but she is. Okay. Mm -hmm. But Jesus, who in this vision informed me about everything needful to me, answered with these words and said, and this is the famous quote, sin is necessary, but all will be well, and all will be well, and every kind of thing will be well. Okay. And that's the famous quote. And there are people who take that as Julian saying that Jesus suggests that there will be universal salvation. But that's not what she says at all. Right? More what she says is that it's God promises her that it's well. And what he seems to mean is the way things currently exist is well. Sin is necessary. Mm -hmm. Right? So essentially, right, people won't be damned unless they deserve it. <laughs> right? Everything will be well in that sense. But... Not everyone is going to know God in the end. And there is this sort of um, really interesting struggle. She comes back to it a lot. And she says, for just, this is slightly later in the vision, for just as the Blessed Trinity created all things from nothing, just so will the same Blessed Trinity make everything well which is not well. So... That does come closer to making it sound, right? Everything well that is not well. But again, mm -hmm. she doesn't say everyone will be saved. Just that whatever happens in the end basically is the right thing to happen and should be considered well. So she says, one article of our faith is that many creatures will be damned, such as the angels who fell out of heaven because of pride, who are now devils, mm -hmm. and many pen on earth who die out of the faith of holy church. Right? All these will be internally condemned to hell, as Holy Church teaches me to believe. And this being so, it seemed to me that it was impossible that every kind of thing should be well, as our Lord revealed at this time. And to this I had no other answer as a revelation from our Lord except this. What is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall preserve my word in everything, and I shall make everything well. Hmm. And she says from this she was sort of taught to stand firm and to believe. I know we're super running out of time, but um, <laughs> this sense of <laughs> this really interesting struggle, because she sort of can't obviously square hell with divine love. So she has this promise, everything will be well. It, she doesn't see how people being condemned, even the angels who fell, right, they were building as God. She can't see how that is well. But God says what's impossible for her is not impossible for him. Mm-hmm. And also, she kind of shouldn't worry about it, right? Now, obviously, right. grossly simplifying all of this. So, if we have any, like, full-on medievalists listening, yes, I'm grossly simplifying all of this. <laughs> but that struggle, right, the core of that struggle 
is the problem. And that sense of she does not go out on the limb of universal salvation, but she does not close the door on it, which is also Mm -hmm. really important. She leaves the door open, right? Maybe it is possible for God to make sure that will happen, Mm -hmm. right? It's not clear, but she has been taught to believe that if people are condemned, that's the way it should be and that that should be considered well. Um, But it is brilliant. I mean, right, she's this brilliant woman. And that struggle is really at the core. Um, And some of the other people we've just talked about, like Hadavij and Marguerite Perrette, don't spend quite as much time worrying about that. Um, Marguerite Perrette, of course, you can see why. I mean, she's already sort of out on this everything is love. Right. (laughs) There's not room for as many other things. Right. And, And, of course, her philosophy, again, is just so detailed and complicated. Um, but Julian, this is a very real problem, right? She's an anchorist. She helps people. They come to her for help. Mm-hmm. They come to her window. She talks to them, right? It's a very sort of difficult issue. And Marjorie Kemp, who we've mentioned before, is one of the people who visits Julian, actually. She visits her around 1414 for advice. Mm-hmm. She's the one who would cry in public and things like yes. that. Yes. She has sort of the earliest autobiography in English, the book of Marjorie Kemp. She's brilliant. Um, but she's an ordinary person. She's not learned. She doesn't actually write her book herself. She dictates it. Yeah. Um, but she has things like Richard Rolla and Elizabeth of Hungary and Bridget of Sweden. She has all these things read to her. So she actually knows all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? She's well enough off. She's middle class. She's what we would say sort of upper middle class. But she has, you know, so she has enough means to sort of travel. She goes on pilgrimage. She does all these things. She has the stuff read to her. And she ends up dictating her book and her visions. Um, and one of her big things, similarly, she worries about the same mm-hmm. thing Julian does. Um, and one thing that Marjorie, like a lot of other women, did was to do penance for people. Which is to say that if you were already doing so much penance that your sins were forgiven, because you were doing so much penance on earth, which really isn't supposed to be possible. But Christ tells Marjorie that her sins are already forgiven. And so she basically asks that for all the penance and the suffering that she has to come, because he tells her, like, all the slanders and the suffering she endures in the world are penance enough for her sins. Um, and okay. so she basically asks to bank her credit, <laughs> right, uh, for other people. And if she could sort of use her stuff for other people. Um, and Jesus tells her that she's saved many souls um, and helped souls in purgatory and that she's her tears harm the devil more than the fire in hell um, because she saved many souls with her weeping which it makes it sound now this is also really borderline and Marjorie actually does get brought up on charges as well although her trials accuse her of being a lollard which is a proto-protestant which she is not Mm -hmm. and she gets off because she's not one she's just again this woman who kind of annoys people Um, (laughs) basically right you know so you put them on trial but what happens is um, she does have these sort of conversations. And so this conversation, it's really interesting because obviously someone who's in hell doesn't get let out until the last judgment, if ever. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, people who are supposed to go to hell also don't just get out at the last because of somebody else. So, uh, you know... They themselves, if they pray to a saint and get enough forgiveness, could manage to pop themselves into purgatory. But this moment makes it sound as though people who are sort of on their way to hell, right, have been saved by Marjorie's prayers and tears and penance, hmm. which does essentially make her a living saint, right? That she has interceded for them and they have therefore yeah. escaped the clutches of hell. Um, so that's definitely good for her. Yes. <laughs> But she's definitely skating on that line. But she, similarly, has a lot of problems with hell and asks God about hell. And is similarly sort of told not to worry. People only go there if they want to, basically. <laughs> right? Um, and that, But that's that same huh. sense of not being able to bear the idea that there would be people who are absent from the love of God. Right? Um, and so this sense um, is where we pick up hell itself so we'll sort of end here we're skipping a section that i had wanted to discuss but that's okay um with dante because obviously that's where you have to start with hell yes we will of course come back to dante next time (laughs) but 
this is one of the biggest things that Dante has to learn as he goes through hell. Um, and so as he gets deeper into it and the sins get worse, he has to learn not to feel bad. Those are people mm. who wanted to be there. And that's the important part. They want to be there. They do not want to be in the love of God. And that's a, it's really difficult to understand. This is why, of course, the Divine you County. They hmm? feel like they feel like they deserve to be there. No, no, no. Or no, no. They wanted to um, commit the sins. No, it's more like um, they. <laughs> hmm. How to describe it briefly? They also it's worth noting as he goes, the further he goes, the closer he gets to um, people who don't want to be remembered back on Earth. Mm-hmm. So there does come to be a sort of sense of shame, for sure. Um, but no, the idea is that if you actually wanted to be in the light of God, if you wanted God's love, you would have asked for it. Mm. Right? At any point, up until the moment you are actually dead, you can do that. Now, if you wait oh. until what is literally the last second, the last breath you take... You're going to be in purgatory for a very, very, very long time. Okay. But purgatory, if you end up in purgatory, you will get to heaven. This is, this is like right? the thieves, the thief uh, who went to heaven, right? That you yes. can still be forgiven. Yeah. Up until then. Well, end. he asks directly of Jesus himself and Jesus right. lets him right in. Right. Yeah, so well, it's easy when you person. have a direct line, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it's a wonderful point, right? That the first person to get into heaven is actually a thief. Yeah. Not Moses, or Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob, Mm -hmm. or John the Baptist. Yeah. They all get up after. Yes. Um, But that's sort of the importance. That, aside of, obviously, right, Limbo, where everyone was sort of waiting, and then they got let up, that if you are in hell, then you chose to be there. You did not want divine love, divine grace. You refused. Right. And so mm-hmm. you have to actively refuse it. Okay. Right. Um, you know, like all the stuff that comes on your computer, right? The things that you sort of actively have to turn off so you stop getting them. <laughs> yes. Right? Like you have to have done it. Years. You have to have done that. Um, but this is something that Dante has to learn as he goes through. Because obviously at the beginning, he feels really bad for all these people. Mm-hmm. And it is, of course, worth noting that Dante, the character learns faster than Dante the poet. <laughs> Dante the poet, of course, continues to do things that probably are frowned upon. Putting some of his enemies in hell, for example. Certainly by other people in Florence, yeah. Yeah, well. But um, also, he tends to he tends to forgive people based on love, which is kind of fitting, of course. Um, but consequently, you know, for example, so people who could have been further in if they committed their sin based on love, they tend to be in a lesser circle, depending on sort of oh. what that was. Okay. Um, we'll come back to this, as I said, in greater detail next time. But um, the big, big moment, of course, we'll end here and we'll begin with it next time, is um, the archway over the city of hell, right? Hell is a medieval mm-hmm. city for Dante, right? So you go through the gate into hell. Right. There's the wall around it and there's the gate. Um, And we'll sort of talk next time a little bit about the harrowing when the city shook and a lot of the walls fell. And so they find their way blocked occasionally. Um, But essentially, (laughs) um, this is the the moment where Dante realizes that there are some issues he may not have thought about before (laughs) when it comes to hell. Um, and of course, remember, he's on this whole journey to avoid going there himself, because he's on the primrose path, as they say. Yes. And that's, of course, Shakespeare who says that, not Dante. <laughs> right? The primrose path. Um, Somewhat later. Yeah. Yes. But. but this is the idea, right? So he has to go through this to make sure he stays out of hell and gets into purgatory and therefore eventually to heaven. Um, and the gate is one of those, right, the big reminders. So this is John Charty's translation. Um We'll put the Italian in the notes, though, because it's amazing. And I might read some of it next time. But um, I am the way into the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. 
I am the way into eternal sorrow. Sacred justice moved my architect. I was raised here by divine omnipotence, primordial love, and ultimate intellect. Only those elements time cannot wear were made before me, and beyond time I stand. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. So, <laughs> that is the problem with hell. And that is the problem everyone struggled with. Why would God create it before it was needed? Mm -hmm. God is all-knowing, sure. But even so, <laughs> right? Also, you'll notice, right, justice, okay, we see that part. But love? How could love create hell? And that is the question. Hmm. Right? So this is where these mystics go. And you can see why they eventually reach the point of zeroing in on a few different heresies. Right? The sense of annihilation. Or the sense of universal salvation. The two of them are connected in certain ways. Um... Generally, that sense of how can love allow people to be absent from love? Right. And of course, nobody solved that because it's a heresy. Sure. But <laughs> that is the big question. Right. Why does hell exist? Cool. So that seems like a potentially good place. And we skipped Joan of Arc. We'll come back to her in the future. Yes. That is okay. Maybe even next time. She seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah, we should... Yeah. She she does. She should probably get her own episode, maybe, with somebody else. <laughs> um, but yeah. So that's right. That's why love and hell are connected. Because really, they have to be. That's the sort of problem. Yeah. It's the, one of the prime paradoxes of medieval theology. Right? How can those two concepts coexist? So we'll return next time with a and full we're doing episode on hell. Damnation and the harrowing, which should be great. Yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> so this will be like full on hell. We will deal less with the paradoxes, although we'll start there, but much more with the the fun, maybe, <laughs> as it were, the all joy, right. the reason we still make all our horror movies yeah. and everything else. I mean, yeah, you know, it's much more interesting. I mean, the Inferno right. is the one everyone reads. I gotta say, Purgatory is a great book, poem. Um, as is Paradise in many ways, but, I mean, of course it's great. <laughs> but what I'm saying is Purgatory is still actually very entertaining. But obviously nothing right. is as entertaining as the Inferno. Because how, how could it be? Nobody no. reads Paradise No, Redeemed. Paradise Lost is the good one. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and who is it? There's a great quote. I never remember who said it. Somebody else famous said it, so we'll have to look this up and footnote it. Um, but that something like Milton, despite everything, was of the devil's side. <laughs> I 100% but... believe it. I, yeah. I believe it, yeah. Yeah. You, you can't. You can't, you can't help, help but be on, uh, on the devil's side when you read the book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and for Dante, of course, it's the devil isn't it so much, but those are the people we identify mm -hmm. with. Of course they're the people we identify with. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is to be human, right? So, but that is also the paradox. Alright. Yes. Alright, so on that yes. fun and charming note. Alright, so before we go, uh, we should remind everybody that there's a Facebook group for Ask a Medievalist that you can find um, by searching for the podcast name on Facebook. And we also have a Twitter account, which is at Ask a Medievalist. Um, and if you tweet at us, we might actually tweet more. So go ahead and give it a try. <laughs> and thanks yes. to everybody who left us reviews <laughs> on uh, iTunes um, and other places. But um, it's especially exciting to see yes, like yeah. a bunch of four-star reviews on, uh, on iTunes, which is really exciting. Yes. Yes, it means we have a People are listening and enjoying it, um, which we yep. appreciate. Yes. And we'll get better at promoting <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> now that the semester is over, yes. things like that. <laughs> we'll learn sure. more about Instagram. <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> we can put up we can put up it's some us. of the uh on twitter the uh 13th century you know paintings or il- illuminations or the really yes, exciting so caravaggio he's a little bit later but i really like caravaggio so all right totally fair all right yes so uh thanks for joining us and uh Hope you hope you enjoyed it, and uh, until next time, uh, keep it medieval. Bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.